Scripture reading this morning, sermon text, is Job chapter 9. We'll read all 35 verses, reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter 9 of Job, verse 1, then Job answered, he's answering his uh, second friend, Bildad. Job answered and said, truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right... I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will hold me, you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. This is God's word. We're taking Job in scenes over seven weeks, seven acts, sort of like a play. Today is act three. This chapter nine, Job's reply to Bildad's take on what happened to Job. That's in chapter eight, Bildad's words. We're not looking at those, but Bildad is one of the three friends who goes to Job, sits with him at first, which is the best thing the three friends did, but then they start talking. 
Bildad being one of them, his first opening words to Job chapter 8. And his take in chapter 8, not that different from Eliphaz, whom we considered last week. But Job's three friends believe he must have done something. He had to have done something that required God to take such a punitive, harsh route with him. And his kids also must have failed. I I will point this out to you. If you'll look back up at chapter 8, Bildad's words, chapter 8, verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. It's their fault they died. I mean, now you can see why Job later calls his friends in chapter 13 worthless physicians and in chapter 16 miserable comforters. Next week when we get into the back and forth with the third friend, Zophar, that guy essentially tells Job, you know, you actually deserve worse than what's happened to you. They're not helping. And God himself will tell them at the end of the book that very thing. You weren't helpful to my servant Job and you didn't speak things that were true of me either. We'll get to that. But here in this point in the narrative, the friends think there's something Job must repent of. And they believe their call is to cause him to do this, catalyze it, goad him, gig him to it, make him see his need to repent. And it's not that repentance isn't good. It's not that calls to repent are mistaken. No, as believers, followers of the Lord Jesus, we traffic in repentance. Remember uh, Martin Luther's uh, first thesis statement in his 95 that he nailed to the door at Wittenberg. When Jesus Christ calls us to repent, he intends that all of life be one of repentance. Be careful not to confuse repentance and penance. They're not the same. Penance is trying to prove to God how sorry we are for some failing and try to make it up to him ourselves. That's not repentance. Repentance is an act of worship and it's called for whenever, however, All along our lives, however it looks for us to go seeking from sin, whatever sin, whether it's an unrighteous sin or a self-righteous sin, whatever it looks like for us to go seeking from sin, what we should find in our Savior, that's when we repent. That's when we practice repentance, which is a a turning away from from localities where we would plant our our identity and our meaning and our purpose that's beneath uh, who our Savior is and and who he calls us to be, what he calls us to live into. Repentance wasn't the issue for Job. Job knows it. He's working through it. It's not that he's not open to friends suggesting that maybe there's something there, but at the same time, he he knows there's nothing there. He doesn't consider himself a perfect man, but he is blameless in the Old Testament sense of there's nothing you can point to directly and say, I'm guilty of that, and therefore this judgment, this punishment uh, has come my way. There, there is nothing. And so in chapter 9, he replies to Bildad in chapter 8. That's how chapters 3 through 37 go. The largest part of Job is Job says something, a friend responds, Job responds, a friend responds, Job responds. That's where we are. In chapter 9, he's responding to what Bildad says in chapter 8, basically about how God is peerless in his righteousness. 
And that's why Job says the first line of verse 2, truly I know that it is so. Okay, Bildad, you're telling me God is exacting in his righteousness and he cannot approve of evil and I'm with you on that. But if that's so, how come God has done evil to me? This is the elephant in the room. Isn't what's happened to me, my friends, unrighteous? You know me. This is Job you're talking to. Isn't what's happened to me, all this loss of my wealth and health and my children, isn't this evil? And don't we know who's done it to me? That's verse 24 here in chapter 9 where he says, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Now, we say, now, wait a minute, because he means God. We say, well, wait a minute, he, Job doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. He doesn't know that this is actually Satan who's brought all this on him, as we learned in chapter 1. If, if Job knew it was Satan, he would direct his fury at him. Maybe that would change things. Well, that may be. But we also know, we know from the opening narrative that God approved Satan wreaking havoc on Job. God, for whatever reason, inexplicably to a, a lot of readers through the centuries, commends Job to Satan, raised his profile uh, as it was, almost as if inciting Satan to do something, uh, chafing at Satan's pride, you know, so that he would get him to do something. And yet, what does chapter 2, verse 3 tells us? God says, you incited me, Satan. Chapter 2, verse 3, God says to Satan, you incited me against Job to, to, to destroy him without reason. So even with the agency of Satan, God is still implicated here. And Job, you saw the language as you go through the chapter. Job is uh, acting like uh, a prosecutor. A prosecutor that is doing something that never happens. He's calling the judge to the stand. Because the issue he has is with the judge. It's not unlike, uh, there's a rabbi in Los Angeles, Sinai Temple, a pretty famous rabbi named David Wolpe. David Wolpe uh, wrote a book uh, called The Healer of Shattered Hearts, A Jewish View of God. And in that book, he recounts um, uh, a Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, there's a sunset prayer that's given in that, in that day. And there was an old rabbi uh, who one time was giving the particular prayer that goes in the, in the cadence of that high holy day on the Jewish calendar. And he says, um, this particular rabbi seemed very deep in thought, and the people gathered for, for uh, worship there uh, were, were almost afraid that something was wrong with him. He was waiting too long. And then finally the rabbi spoke, and this is what he said. Dear God, we come before you this year, as we do every year, to ask your forgiveness. But in this past year, I have caused no death. I have brought no plagues upon the world, no earthquakes, no floods. I've made no women widows, no children orphans. God, you have done these things, not me. Perhaps you should be asking forgiveness from me. And Wolpe says that rabbi paused and then continued in a softer voice, but since you are God and I am only, 
Levi Yitzhak, magnificent and sanctified is thy name. And he began the service. Now, we're uncomfortable with that. <laughs> we don't like that. Uh, we have a strong gag reflex. If we were listening to that rabbi, you know, perhaps you should ask for, you know, who are you to question God? We, we feel that as evangelicals. But Wolpe included that little vignette in his book because he's trying to make the point that God's people think this out with him because he's got a point. God's people, Rabbi David Wolpe says, are the only ones who have any reason to question God. Let's set aside for a moment the Judaism. Uh, just, he just says God's people, lump category. We know God's people are those who are uh, belong to him through uh, the work of Jesus Christ. But Wolpe, as a Jew, is making a point we can learn from, which is that God's people are the only ones to have re that have any reason to question God because God's people are the ones who want to love him and understand him. And sometimes that requires questions. And, Wolpe goes on to say, questioning and mocking is not the same thing. Wolpe says the final answer for Judaism and here's where we part company with him. The final answer for Judaism, Wolpe says, when they can't close the gap between God's intentions and designs and our pain and suffering, is to continue to pray. Wolpe says that's the best that Judaism is going to be able to do. You continue to pray. And Christians know that's insufficient as a final answer because God has done more himself to close the gap. The gap between God and ourselves is, is not filled with our persistent praying, though we are exhorted often uh, throughout the New Testament to pray and, and be constant in prayer. But Jesus himself fills the gap between us and God. And we're not given answers to our questions always, but we are given an answerer in the person of Jesus. But again, questioning and mocking is not the same thing. The rabbi is right about that. Job doesn't scoff at God because Job is a worshiper, come what may. He's dealing with his God and, and he's not going anywhere. God's not going anywhere from Job and Job's not going anywhere from God. And, and yet he's got to argue his case. To whom else is he going to express these hard feelings? And he believes God owes him. Job believes God owes him some kind of explanation, if not an apology. And Rabbi Wolpe says that's classic Jewish spirituality, to question and argue with God. And I've told you before that lament which Job is engaging in. Genuine lament is faith-seeking understanding. It's not just venting our spleen. Once grief finds its voice and begins to take that voice to God, we are, are doing so seeking understanding as, as much as it's possible for us to understand. And, and we will encounter limits and thresholds in that that we won't be able to cross. But we'll still seek. It's part of working through our emotions. So the issue that Job has in response to his friend Bildad, and again, we didn't read Bildad's take on this, which is chapter 8. You can go back and read it. We just read Job's response in chapter 9, which is really more a response to God than to Bildad. In fact, all of Job's responses go like this. He's talking beyond his friends to 
the God that he has these issues with. And the issue Job has in chapter 9 is, okay, if God is as exacting in his righteousness as Bildad tries to say that God is, if that's so, if God is exacting in his righteousness such that God does not approve evil, judges evil punitively, then Job wants to know how come he's done evil to me. It's the elephant in the room. It's the elephant or, or maybe it's the chicken. <laughs> if you, uh, have you ever heard what uh, Joseph Stalin, who was the premier of the Soviet Union for 30 some odd years from the 1920s to 1950s. Ever heard what he did to a chicken one time? It's a famous story. Joseph Stalin wanted to make a point to his senior officials and to some uh, uh, members of the media. And he invited them to uh, join him in a barnyard. And in this barnyard, uh, Stalin took a chicken and he, he put the chicken in his arm like this, his hand firmly under the, the chicken's breast, and, he, and with the other hand, he, he began to pull out fistfuls of feathers. And, you know, you may not know, uh, chicken, that hurts. <laughs> and and the, the chicken is writhing and, and making these painful noises, and Stalin, uh, oblivious to the, to the repugnancy on the faces of his of his counselors and these uh, media uh, people, he keeps doing it until he has defeathered the entire chicken. And he puts the chicken down in the barnyard and he's placed some feed over in a corner and he puts the chicken there and the chicken begins to, to, to peck the feed and, and the chicken is weak and wobbly and in great pain. The chicken is eating, and, and Stalin has taken a, a fistful of the feed and put it in his coat pocket, and he steps back, and he holds out his fist with the feed in it, and lo and behold, the chicken comes over and eats from the hand that had just inflicted so much torture upon him. And Stalin looks at this company of people to whom he wanted to make this point, and he said this, people are like this chicken. It doesn't matter how much pain you inflict on them. The moment you offer them what they need, they will still follow you and turn to you for the survival. And Stalin brutally proved that point in killing millions of Russians during his tenure. Here I am defeathered, as it were, Job says in chapter 9. And I, and I know who's done it to me. If it's not God, then who is it? Verse 24. If God is in control, meaning nothing happens in this world he made, nothing happens in this world that he owns, uh, if nothing happens here apart from his knowledge and sovereignty, then he is either has sent this evil upon me or he's allowed it. Either way, what's the point of it? That's what Job wants to know in chapter 9. Is it Stalin's point? Is God's point Stalin's point? Stalin's point in inflicting pain in service to his dictatorship was to say, I have such a hold on this country. I control these people so much I can inflict cruelty on them. And so long as I provide their needs, they will continue 
to see me as their leader. He held out grain to the chicken that he'd hurt. And the chicken ate from the same hand that hurt him. Now, Job is not God's chicken. Why not? Because absolutely no benefit is being held out to Job to continue believing in God. Not a peck of anything. None. As to human benefits, count your many blessings, name them one by one benefits. None. And this, the trust that Job is demonstrating, it's not blind trust that doesn't think about why it believes, it just does, you know. You've encountered that in the church. I don't know why I believe, I just do, you know. As if, as if that's honorable. Nor is, is Job's trust even dependent trust. Here's what we, we got to watch this thing about dependent trust. I, I've heard from evangelicals my entire life the need to depend on God. And it's not wrong. But there's some unexamined assumptions informing that. The ways we talk about depending on God, it's often very binary. It's often very either or. You know, we'll, we'll recite some life lesson we learned and I was trusting in this instead of trusting in, in God as if it's always an either or, as if I always was or I wasn't. I am or I'm not depending on him. I, I've heard evangelicals talk this way my entire life. I remember in college uh, being part of a campus ministry as a student, one of the big emphases was learning to depend on God. You need to depend on God, not, not a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know, which the subliminal message was, you know, don't, don't, don't get a boyfriend, don't get a girlfriend. You just depend on, on God. Find your, 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 your full uh, satisfaction in Him. And we said, you know, I, that became a, a mark of, of, our, of, our, of our spiritual growth. I just, I just, I just want to depend on God. I want to put myself in situations where I got to depend on God alone. And it comes from a good heart. And I don't want to monkey with that except to say, to point out that baked into this, baked into our sense of what dependence requires of us, is God will become worthy of our trust as we see him do for us. But you see what we've, you see what we've done there? There's still the strong whiff of what's in it for me. Even as we're thinking ourselves dependent, I'll depend on him because I've been told, as I do, he will provide for me. He'll give me something in return. Now, I don't think we can, we can help this. I think that's the equation. That's the math as it works. It's kind of like uh, when people become too scrutinizing of their motivations, and they try to find that, you know, I, I want to go about this with the very purest motivation that I possibly can find. Your motives are always multiple and they're frequently mixed. Just, it's just reality. They just are. Don't worry about whether your motivation is entirely pure or has some alloy. It always has an alloy in it. And so with dependency on God. How we think about this is, is that 
It's the height of wanting nothing from God. You know, if I can just learn to be dependent on God, then, then I'll just want nothing from him. But we are depending on him just because we do want something from him. What if you got nothing? What if you got nothing for depending on God? Would you still talk about trusting God if you got nothing for it? Job is experiencing the nothing. No provision from God in this season he was in. He's got his life still, but he hates his life. What did he say in verse 21? I loathe my life. We read all the way to the end of chapter 9. If you look at the first verse in chapter 10, I loathe my life. He said the same thing back in chapter 7. No protection from God. No tangible benefit to maintaining his trust. In fact, if anything, he feels God has done him evil. If you go to the very end of Job, we'll come to it in two or three weeks here. If you come to the very end of Job, Job 42, verse 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before. They're talking about Job. And they ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord brought upon him. Job 42, 11. Now some translations try to soften that with disaster, but it's the same difference. There's no tangible benefit anymore to maintaining his trust in God. Job's wife sees that. Why can't he? And Job's friends say, if you want good things again from God, then you've got to deal with whatever sin has put all these hard things into your life instead. You haven't been depending on him like you should, Job. And so he's shaken things up for you to to get you to depend on him. And Job says, "That, that just doesn't compute. I mean, the whole argument the friends make collectively is premised on getting a return from God because even the friends don't trust God for nothing. But Job does. And that's what makes him remarkable. He seems to be the only one in his era who trusted God for nothing. And now we at least get some sense how it is God could volunteer Job to Satan to test him as he did, to test his mettle. Back in chapter 1, when he says, the Lord says to Satan, this is chapter 1, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan said to that in chapter 1, well, sure he does. I mean, you've, you've given him every benefit for doing so, but remove all that and he'll curse you. What was Satan counting on? Human nature, self-interested. We don't do anything for nothing. We always want something. And yet what we see as the story unfolds is that Job doesn't curse, he, he doesn't mock, he doesn't scoff at God. Chapter 13, verse 15 that I've referenced before, uh, uh, one of these verses you highlight in Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him, 
yet I will argue my way to his face. It's the both and, Job 13, 15. But even so, even though he's arguing his way, he's calling God from the judge seat into the witness chair. But he trusts God. He trusts God for nothing. Even when every tangible benefit for doing so is stripped away, that's the story. It becomes apparent reading this story that Job wasn't in it with God for what he would get from God. He wasn't in it to have his faith rewarded or to get in on blessings. You know, it's, it's been pointed out before in many evangelical contexts that we rightly uh, take issue with prosperity theology and this emphasis that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy, but we live like prosperity theologians. It's different between saying, you know, I don't believe that, but I actually, in the way I live my life, I do, I have the same expectations. I think God will keep me happy and safe and well and, and fulfilled. And as long as he does that, then I'll trust him. I'm depending on him. Job could have given up on God, but it seems in Job's experience that he had come to love God for God. This is why he was hurt, why he felt so hurt. He trusted God for God, not, not for what he'd get from God. So God's point, the point God makes to Satan in this book is not Stalin's point. God is not the great Joseph Stalin in the sky torturing his people. God allowed one time in antiquity a scenario to unfold in the life of one of his choicest servants centuries before Jesus came. A scenario in which there was no tangible benefit to keep trusting God. And yet Job kept trusting. And I think we can locate in chapter 9 two reasons why. And we'll go through these pretty quickly and then be done. Two reasons why Job's continuing to trust God when no human benefit for doing so is there. Two reasons from chapter 9. The first reason being the practice of worship. Job's practice of worship is ingrained. And the second reason we find in chapter 9 is that Job is longing for a mediator. So when you start to piece together how come it is that Job could trust God for nothing. There's the practice of Job's worship ingrained. And there's also... Job's longing for a mediator. You can see his practice of worship ingrained in verses 4 through 12 here in chapter 9. I'm not going to reread chapter 9 verses 4 through 12, but as your eye takes in that passage, if you're looking at a Bible, looking at verses 4 through 12, look at what Job is doing in these verses. In utter pain, he's extolling God's creative power. He's using the language of praise, verses 4 to 12. And in doing that, he's showing that his hunger for God is still there in him. He still clings to God being behind everything. He's got questions. He never stops believing God is there to hear them, whether he answers them or not, is another matter. But God is there to hear and Job is there to hunger for God. 
But what happened to Job, again, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense to him. But instead of saying, no sense can be made of this and so I'm out, Job says, there is one who can make sense of this. And though I don't understand him right now, right now, I, I will not deny that he's there and I will not deny that he cares. Just because I can't see a reason for this doesn't mean there isn't one. And so as he begins his response to Bildad, verses 4 through 12, he says, look at the world as God's made it. It's wonderful and terrible at the same time. That's verses 4 through 12. And you know, later when God will speak to Job, chapter 38 and following, God will name these same constellations. Job names constellations in verse 9. And God will echo Job's praise back to him as if to say, you're right, Job. It's all mine. No one else can do what I can. You're right about that. We'll get to that in chapter 38. But I think it's important to notice in trying to square up with how and why Job can trust God for nothing. I think it's important to notice that Job has a big God. You will not praise a God that you have whittled down to the size of your life. You will praise a big God who is personal to you, yet above you. Job wants answers from God. Even an apology, he will be so bold as to ask. Nevertheless, Job will not shrink God down to the size of his life. And that's instructive. That's painfully instructive, but instructive nonetheless. Because when we're suffering as moderns, and we want to know why. We have the tendency to shrink God down to the size of ourselves and then not so much argue with him as we just give up on him. And what this reveals about our worship is that worship is not ingrained in us. Worship being a response to God in and through all of life, come what may. Worship as a strategy whereby we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God and the call of God and the will of God and the way of God. God who can fit his presence inside my life while at the same time remaining ever and always larger than my life. That has to get into the grain of a worshiper of God. Think of wood grain. The grain is fundamental to the wood and there are different patterns in grain, wood grains, but, but wood is its grain, layers upon layers of it. So too a worshiper of God. Cut us open. And what kind of grain are we? Job got cut open, gashed, and what bled out was questions and anger and confusion and grief, but also worship. The willingness still to respond to God. I believe I know there are more than a few people in our churches for whom worship is the first thing to go. It's the first thing to go if, if, if God is not seeing to my comfort, my needs, not fulfilling my dreams, hopes, and desires. And by worship, I don't mean singing or even being present at church. That's part of worship, but not all of it. By closing off our worship, I mean when we believe God is no longer worthy of my trust and my obedience and my allegiance, my confidence, because look at what happened to me. 
Look at what he allowed in my life. And in that posture, though it's painful and it's understandable how we go there, it is understandable. We are seeing in ourselves that we will not worship God for nothing. I must have some return that I can count favorable, that I can count beneficial. We're all like this to differing degrees. Job's practice of worship ingrained. And then second, Job's longing for a mediator. Why does Job keep trusting for nothing? Keep trusting God in the absence of every human benefit for doing so. Well, part of it is he has a longing for a mediator. He has a hope for something more from God. Look in uh, verses 33 to 35. There is no arbiter between us. Actually, let's, uh, let's look at it from verse 32. Chapter 9, verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us. By arbiter, he means mediator. Who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me anymore. Arbiter is mediator. What Job is longing for, we've got. What Job longs for is answered in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God taking on human flesh and coming to be that one who puts a hand on both the father and the person estranged from him. The father who requires perfect justice and holiness, the person who can't give that, but the one between us can and has. How does Paul put it to Timothy? 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. Job centuries before is saying can that time be now? You know when you look at the word mediator and you look at the word immediate. You've got, you've got similar uh, root words. The word from which we get mediator is the same word from which we get immediate. Could God become immediate to me now, Job is saying? Job wants that. He needs that. So do you and I need that. And we got that. We got the one who put his hand on us both, reconciles God and people. And through what? Through suffering. The same kind of abandonment by God that Job felt. On the cross, Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And before that, he goes through this, his, his friends, Jesus' friends failing him, like Job's friends failing. Jesus' friends let him down. They fall asleep on him. They flee from him when the soldiers come. They deny him. Jesus would have trusted his father for nothing. But it wasn't for nothing. It was for everything. I've been reading in Hebrews as part of my Bible reading calendar and saw this just last week and been reflecting on it. Hebrews 5 
Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Who does that sound like? Job. He was offering these up to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus had a hard question for God. Is this cup, can it not pass from me? Do I have to take this? Look at all the times in the Gospels where he sighs. He says in Hebrews, he looked to the one who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's one of the most mind-blowing verses in the New Testament. But again, there's echoes of Job. And being made perfect, this is Hebrews 5, 9. He, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And eternal salvation is not nothing. I've said to you many times already, we have it better than Job did this side of the cross. Because even though we can still engage in this, uh, I want something for my trust, and, and, and I, uh, we, we've been given everything in what Christ has done for us. Everything, everything you need before God you've been given. Generously, graciously, what Job longed for, a mediator, one to put his hand on us both, we got. And the benefits of getting that are immediate to us. Would you pray with me? Father, as uh, we think about this, we are grateful that you have accomplished for us what we needed. And so you don't call us to, to trust you for nothing. You've given us the eternal something of life in your Son. But Lord, the way is long and, and at times it's hard. And there are times we will not experience direct benefits. And there are times that even for bearing your name, people will spite us, shame us, ridicule us. Times when there is no direct benefit for knowing you, for having trusted you, for submitting our request to you. Lord, would you build our trust even in those times? We're not interested in, in, in boasting in ourselves. We want to boast in the goodness of the Lord Jesus to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would build our faith such that we do that. The point is not our own example to others. The point is that Jesus Christ has accomplished everything we have needed so that though we approach you with nothing, we get everything in return in the life, in the mediation, in the immediacy of Jesus being our ever-present Savior and King. Thank you for grace, generous, abundant, full. And Father, in those hard times, when we're questioning, we're wondering, we're angry, we're upset. We wanted you to do this and this didn't happen. Instead, that did. Our worst fears were realized. Lord, we know whom to bring it all to. But even in that, that you would meet us and that you would take us back to Jesus. Each time, every time. We pray this in his name. Amen.